0: Thanks, Blake and Praise Team. If you will, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 to 34. Matthew chapter 9, 32 to 34 is where we're going to be this morning. The, uh, the concept of value is a difficult thing to wrap your mind around. I was thinking about this the other day as I was trying to explain what something is worth to my children for we take it for granted that we understand what something is worth by a dollar sign on the front of it or or whatever but it's sometimes it's difficult to explain because there is what the product is worth which is its value but then there's what the product is worth to you which is a personal kind of value as an example my kids have many toys they get them for christmas and one of my children's favorite toys is one they got in a McDonald's Happy Meal. I'm sure we've all had that scenario play out where we give our kids these presents for Christmas, and especially when they're little babies, you give them the presents, and then what they find most enjoyable is the box that the presents came in. You know, I could have just spent 15 cents on a box and given it to you, but... Right? So there's the value of an item or a product or whatever it is, and then there's the personal value. My car, outside in the parking lot, if you put $900 worth of gold in the back of it, it'd be worth about $1,000. All right? But to me, it's really valuable because if something were to happen to it, then I would have to make a car payment. I would have to find a way to replace it. See, it doesn't have a car payment on it, it's beat up and it doesn't look very good, but it's, it's okay because it's mine and it's paid for and it's A to B. That's exactly what I need. So there is a personal value to that car that's much greater than the value of the car itself. You see, our whole lives revolve around value. Every decision we make is a decision of value. We may give up a day to watch the masters and spend it with our wife. That may be a choice that we make because what we're communicating is that our wife is more valuable than the masters. Now, I just inadvertently threw any guy under the bus that told his wife to take a hike yesterday because I'm watching the masters. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that, but you're probably not here. It's okay. Um, (laughs) But we get we might give up sleep to talk with a friend if they're going through a moment of crisis. Because, you know, we feel like that friend in our relationship with them is more valuable than the sleep. And anytime a question of value, what something is worth arises, the question of personal value is implicit. And they're not always the same. But the question of personal value is implicit. A spouse we know is valuable because Proverbs 18.22 says, he who finds a Wife finds a good thing, that it's not good for man to be alone. We see that in Genesis. So we know that having a wife is a good thing, but how much time you spend with them, how much conversation happens between you and your wife tells you you how you actually personally value your spouse. This morning we close out this miracle section that we've been going through in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. And the implicit question of personal value is going to come to the surface for us. So join with me as we read Matthew 9, 32 to 34. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the Prince of Demons. In our text this morning, we come to the final miracle in a set of nine miracles, in just a run-through of nine miracles that Matthew has given to us in chapters 8 and 9. And so for those of you that may be new to our congregation or for those that haven't been keeping up or maybe weren't here for the last few weeks, I'm going to just remind you of what Matthew has demonstrated to us or what he's shown to us over the last four weeks or a few weeks. In chapters 8 and 9, Matthew presents nine miracles, but he does so in sets of three trilogies, if you will. So we see, you can actually look back in your Bible there in chapter 8, 1 to 17, you see three consecutive miracles that he gives to us there. You probably see those by the headings in your Bible. And then you'll see in verse 18 of chapter 8, we get a break. And so it's not miracles, it's a brief description of another scene that takes place. But then, right after that ends, we get three more miracles in 8, 23 All the way to 9.8. There's three more miracles laid out there. And then we get another break for a few verses. And then we get three final miracles in uh, 9.18 and to 34, which the last of which we're there today. And then we'll get a conclusion where we'll be next week. Now, this structure that Matthew gives to us is clearly intentional. There's no question in my mind he didn't just accidentally stumble into this structure. It's very intentional for more reasons, which I'll get to next week. But this morning, we find ourselves in the last episode of these trilogies of miracles. And certainly Jesus is going to do more miracles later on in the Gospels. But in this section, this is the last one of the miracles. And so in all of this Gospel, Matthew has made some really terrific claims about Jesus. I mean, he's laid it out there on the table what he expects us to take away from who Jesus is. And remember that at the center of this gospel is a new kingdom, and Christ is the steward of that kingdom. Christ is the king of that kingdom, and he's bringing it to earth. And Jesus, as the point man, as the king of this kingdom, is bringing it to earth. And Matthew says, even from from the very first chapter... From the, Even the first verse, that Jesus is the son of David, son of Abraham, and he's making a very explicit claim. Jesus is not only bringing this kingdom, but he is the king. He's the one that it's all about. So this whole gospel is laying out then proof for you and for me that Jesus really is the one that Matthew is claiming that he is. So these nine miracles then are really designed almost like a boxing match where Matthew has pushed us, the reader, into the corner and he's going to hit us with nine straight miracles to the ribcage. Each one of them is designed to do more damage to our disbelief in Jesus than the one that preceded it. It's supposed to further the point. To the point where we get to the end in our passage today and disbelief that Jesus is the king becomes really ridiculous. At this point, if you believe Matthew's account is true, that he's really telling the truth, then you can't not believe that Jesus is king. You can't believe that Jesus isn't the one that is bringing the kingdom. You can't believe that the kingdom of God isn't more powerful than the kingdom that we currently live in, if you believe Matthew's account here. So Matthew expects us to be overcome by by the sheer excitement of what Jesus is actually bringing to the table and the authority that he's bringing to the table and that we would then turn and trust him for salvation. But as you can clearly see in the text this morning, well, not everyone is as impressed as maybe we are. We see very clearly in our text that there's still those that don't believe. Today we're going to see three snapshots in this scene. And I want to take a look at each one of the snapshots, and the first is going to be the actual healing of the mute man, and then the next snapshot is going to be around the reaction of the crowds, and then the last snapshot, we're going to look at the Pharisees that are standing there and their reaction to Jesus. Each one of these snapshots has something significant, I think, to tell us about Jesus more broadly And so we're going to identify those things. The first snapshot, I think, tells us that Jesus has unquestioned authority over demonic forces. Jesus has unquestioned authority over demonic forces. Look at verse 32 in the first part of 33. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. Now, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we were in the previous passage in Matthew where Jesus healed two blind men. And the blind men, it says there, referred to Him as the Son of David. They called Him Son of David. Now, if you missed the sermon two weeks ago, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. And not to stroke my own ego, but just to say there's a section in there where I deal with the term Son of David. And it's really helpful, I think, for you to understand what Matthew is saying there, what the men are saying about Jesus there. So I would encourage you, if you missed that, to go back and listen to it. I'm not going to rehash all of that, but just to say a couple of things that matter for us this morning and are important for us to understand for the purposes of the passage that we are looking at this morning. The first is that the healing of the blind, and then now in our passage, the healing of the mute, are, are much more significant than merely just two random healing scenes. Just two, throw it on top, additional healing scenes that are just trying to impress us. You know, we might be inclined to go along in with Matthew as he's telling us about these miracles, and we go, you know, wow, that one's impressive, well, that one not so much, that, one, that one's okay, and, and really think about these miracles as just really designed to impress us as to who Jesus was. Now, I think we all understand the significance of the raising of a dead girl. I think all of us would say, well, that's fantastic. That right there, that's That's impressive. But then if that's what Matthew's intent is, then we get to this passage where he heals a mute girl. And we think, yeah, Matthew, you probably should have let off with that one. You should have used your strongest argument for the end. Leave the dead girl for the end. And that was the most impressive. And then all the other ones, not so much. He just ran out of impressive miracles. And so now he's just grabbing at straws and trying to present them before us. But in Isaiah 35, we get a peek behind the curtain of the Messiah, of what life is going to be like when the Messiah comes and reigns. We get this little peek behind the curtain. Isaiah 35, 5 to 6 says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So so the blind receiving sight, the the ears of the deaf having their ears unstopped, the lame leaping for joy, and the mute beginning to speak are signs that the Messiah is instituting His kingdom. This is the significance of these miracles. That they're pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. They're furthering Matthew's argument. Here. Here might also be helpful to know that in our text, the word mute can also mean deaf. It literally just means dull. So if the dullness is applied to speech, then the person's mute. If the dullness is applied to their hearing, then they're deaf. In many cases, a person who is deaf is also mute. And so a lot of times it applies both in the same scenario. In this case, we see that it's a result of a demon. In all likelihood, he's probably both deaf and mute, but evidence that the demon is gone is what? He speaks. So we know, we have evidence that he was healed. But these two miracles in particular are also important because if you come back to Matthew, out of Isaiah, back into Matthew, but you turn forward just a couple of chapters into chapter 11. You can go ahead and do that if you want to. Turn to chapter 11, verse 4, since it's only a couple of pages. We're going to see some another significant thing there that Jesus actually says. You may remember this if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew. John the Baptist is in prison. And to be honest with you, he's just sort of losing a little bit of faith. And so what does he do? He sends his disciples to Jesus. And there, the disciples question, John's disciples question, whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? Listen how Jesus responds to John's disciples. Go and tell, in verse 4, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus tells us the interpretation of these healings. How should we look at chapters 8 and 9? How should we we see them? Well, he tells John what he's doing. The blind see and the deaf hear, among many others. In, in, In fact, in these nine miracle stories that we've just read over the course of many weeks, we've seen all these miracles that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is just telling us, how we should interpret those. And he's telling John how he should interpret those. So Jesus is quoting both from Isaiah 35 that we already read, and then he's also lumping in Isaiah 61, where he talks about the the poor receiving the good news, the good news being preached to the poor. And this is also a sign of the Messiah. So Jesus gives us the significance of these miracle stories by telling us that they signify a fulfillment of Scripture as it tells us what kind of miraculous works the Messiah is going to bring with Him when He comes. How will you recognize Him? So here we have in verse 32 a demon-oppressed man who was mute... And this should raise a couple of questions, I think, in our minds. Namely, what is the difference between a demon-oppressed man and a demon-possessed man? There's, there's a lot of other questions that are linked to that, like can a Christian ever be demon-possessed and all, all of those kinds of things. But that, that one question should pop into our minds. What what is the difference between a demon-oppressed man and a demon-possessed man? Well, in short, the answer is nothing. Oppression and possession are really just interpretations that we have in our text that is before us. The same word is actually used for both when you see demon oppression or you see demon possession it's the same word that's being used there and the the translators of the text are trying to clue you in based on the context of what kind of person we're looking at whether this is a demon oppressed man or a demon possessed man if we were to literally translate that word it would probably sound something like demonized this person was just demonized but now you get the kind of demonized where they're chained to a uh, or they're breaking handcuffs and they're living in cemeteries and they're killing people as they walk by versus a guy who has, is deaf and mute. And so there's interpretive choices that are made there, oppression versus possession. But it's really the same word. And sometimes you may even have in your text, "daimoniac," which is basically just a way of getting around that w- way of saying it. So the other common thing that a skeptic will bring to the table, and you probably have heard this, is, well, the Bible describes this man as mute, because he's and and he says that he's demon possessed or demon oppressed but that's because their medical knowledge back then was in short supply and so I'm sure they just attributed things to demon possession that really had perfectly reasonable and medical explanations. You heard this? Anybody heard this? This means yes, this means no? Yes, you've heard this kind of thing. Now, of course, we can't talk to a first century Christian. But I suspect that if we did, if Matthew were standing right here and we were to ask him, his response would probably be something like, it's true, my medical knowledge is not 21st century medical knowledge. And 21st century medical knowledge, yes, was in short supply back then. But today, your spiritual knowledge is in short supply, and so you attribute everything to biology that has a perfectly spiritual explanation. See, it can work backwards. It can work the other way too. It can work against us as well. It's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. And that is to assume that everybody was an idiot until you got here, right? Before then, they just didn't know. Now, we've come in the 21st century to set the record straight. See, Matthew isn't saying, nor does the Bible say, that every medical problem is spiritual. He doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't make that claim. In fact, sometimes you will see the same medical condition or the same condition in one scene brought up as demon possession and in another brought up as a perfectly medical explanation. He was blind from birth versus being mute or deaf because of a demon possession. So even though the biblical authors weren't 21st century physicians, they seem to know demon possession when they saw it. And he's bringing that out on the table here. This man is demon possessed and he's mute. We, on the other hand, I don't think we would recognize demon possession if it hit us in the face. And so we should probably consider this to be true, in other words. But you notice that the focus of this passage is not even on the healing of the man. If you look at it, the focus is not even on the healing of the man. Proof of that is that Matthew doesn't even give us the details of how the demon was cast out. In all the previous episodes of the healing, you see Jesus touching the person, laying his hand on him, Jesus speaking a word, and the, the servant being healed, or whatever. You see him standing up in the boat and saying, peace, be still, and the wind being calm. You see him kneeling beside the girl's bedside and saying, my daughter, arise, be healed, and she rises from the dead. All of these, we have Jesus actually doing something, and the guy's hit. With this guy, he was just brought to Jesus, and it says, and when the demon had been cast out, the man spoke. It's clear that that Jesus healed the man, but it's also clear that Matthew doesn't see fit to tell us the details on how he healed the man. The reason is because Jesus' authority over the spiritual world is a given at this point, it remains unquestioned at this point. Matthew has well proven already over the gospel that Satan's kingdom pales by comparison to the kingdom that Christ is bringing, it pales by comparison. You remember just a chapter ago? There's this encounter that Jesus has on the other side of the Sea of Galilee where He and His disciples get out of a boat and in, they encounter two men that are possessed by demons. A legion of demons. And the demons recognize Him as the Son of God. They call out. That no one else had up to this point until the demons just called it out there. Son of God. So the demons have recognized it. And then... They pleaded with him to have mercy on them. Keep in mind, these men are possessed by a legion of demons. They've been tormenting the town that they're in to the point that everybody is afraid and no one wants to walk by the road that they're on. And as soon as they see Jesus, they cower in fear. Son of God, what do you have to do with us before the time? They're begging him. This comes right after, you remember, Jesus is in the boat with his disciples and he calms the spiritual, the spiritual forces of nature. So by the time we get to this account, it's assumed, I think, that you understand that there isn't a demon out there that is going to resist the authority of Jesus. And so after showing us, showing us that, he, that Jesus has authority... Jesus is now going through making short work of all the enemies that would oppose His kingdom. So Jesus' authority by this point remains unquestioned. His claim to the throne of the kingdom of God is unchallenged. But then the camera shifts to the crowd. And we get our second snapshot and there we see that Jesus' value is understood by those that follow Him. Jesus' value He is understood by those that follow Him. Look at the last part of verse 33. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. I want you to consider what the people say about the miracle or miracles that they've seen so far. Notice first what it doesn't say. They don't say, We haven't seen anything like this in all of Israel. I can almost guarantee you that's the way you read it or the way you heard it initially. We haven't seen anything like this in all of Israel. Now, this would be impressive enough if they said, Look, I have personally never seen anything this crazy in all my life. That would be impressive enough. But it would be similar to, I don't know, hypothetically, if Auburn were to lose a chance at a championship game by fouling a guy at the last second and putting him on the line to win the game. I mean, hypothetically. If we said about that, which we did, man, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Well, that would be impressive enough. I'm 35 years old. Some of you are older than me, and you've probably said the same thing. That's the craziest thing that I've ever seen. But that's not what they say what they actually say, there hasn't been anything like this in all of Israel. That's that's much more substantial. First, you remember what they're talking about when they're talking about the nation of Israel as both the people of Israel and the land that God had promised to them? Second, remember that the nation of Israel, both the people and the land, hold a place over the rest of the world that's much more significant than any other land out there. You'll remember that this is the land that God promised to give to the nation, that He Himself gave to them, that He brought them into. So the statement that's being made by the crowd is basically the world has never seen anything like this, ever in its history. But now I want you to consider the magnitude of the comparison that they're making here, that the crowd's, are making about Jesus and what they're seeing. Think about all the people that have come before Jesus. Think about all the things that the nation of Israel has seen as a people. What about Abraham? Well, he was significant, wasn't he? Remember Abraham? He was the father of the faith. Abraham had the land promised him. Abraham had the people promised to him. It's by Abraham's faith in coming out of the land that he was in and going, going to the land that God had promised him based on God's call that we even have the nation of Israel today. It's by Abraham's obedience to that. Consider also that at the time that God had called him, Abraham didn't know who Yahweh was. Imagine that faith. But what about Moses? Now, Moses didn't enter the land per se. But think of the amazing works that he did in front of the nation of Israel, on display for the nation of Israel to see. Parting of the Red Sea? Well, that's impressive. Meeting with God face to face? That's unbelievable. Receiving the tablets on Mount Sinai? Ten Commandments? Leading the people, judging the nation of Israel? Commanding water from a rock, hitting the water, the rock. What about Samuel? Now, Samuel's one of my personal favorites. What about Samuel? Samuel's a kingmaker. Samuel heard from God as a young man in the temple. Samuel had to take what he heard from God. Think about this for just a second. Samuel had to take what he heard from God. As a, as a page in the temple and take it to his boss and tell him what God said. That's incredible. Samuel spoke truth to Eli. He spoke truth to Saul. There wasn't a person powerful enough that he didn't courageously stare down and speak to them the truth that God had given to them. Yes, yes, yes. He never cowered in the face of adversity. What about David? Well, there was never a king like David. Under David, Israel was united under one monarchy for the first time in their history. Under David, he led many a victory against the Philistines, against many other enemies. He drove them out in battle. David was also given a promise by God that his lineage would never end on the throne. On top of all that, if that's not enough, he was a man after God's own heart. What about Elijah? Remember Elijah staring down the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Remember the slaughter that happened after that? Elijah also had many miracles. He raised a widow's son from death. He too raised the dead. Elijah was one of a couple men that didn't die. He was taken up fire from heaven, a chariot. That's pretty impressive. What about Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the rest of the prophets? Each one of them in their own right stand alone. Each one of them have significant stories to tell. And all of them spoke boldly against powerful people and powerful nations. And stared down kings. All of them foretold accurately what was going to take place. Many of them had visions of God Himself on the throne. The point of all this is to simply demonstrate that to say never was anything like this seen in all of Israel is a really important statement. We saw the crowd's response at the end of the last two passages. Just remind yourself of the last two passages. Look back there at verse 26. What the crowd's report is. It says, The report of this went through all that district. He healed somebody, and the report went through all that district. Hey, he healed somebody. But then look at the next one in verse 31. They went away and spread his fame through all that district. So now it's not just a report that somebody was healed. Now it's the actual fame of this healer that's coming in and healing us, that's spreading through the district that he's in. Now, of course, the crowds have, are beginning to grasp the magnitude of this man Jesus And what they're seeing in the legend of Jesus is growing until there's no greater thing that has ever been seen in all of Israel. Forget the district. All of Israel has never seen anything like this. They're, of course, not merely talking, I don't think, about just the mute man that's been healed. But the Jesus fame is growing at this point. So this miracle that we're seeing at the end, it seems to be the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, but in a good way. They're they're seeing the magnitude of what Jesus is doing, and what are they doing? They're making a value assessment about Him. They're rightly assessing the value of Christ. What we're seeing before us is of more value than Israel has ever seen as a nation. Crowds are declaring the reason they're following after Jesus and it's precisely because of his rarity. Nothing in Israel has ever been like him. Hold that thought in your mind for just a second as we look at our final snapshot which is connected to this one. There we see that Jesus' nature is questioned by everyone else. Jesus' nature is questioned by everyone else. Here, everyone else is represented by the Pharisees. It says this in verse 34 But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. I want you to consider for just a moment the timing of these two statements where they occur in all of the book of Matthew, they, these two statements, one by the crowds and one by the Pharisees, both come at the end of nine straight miracles. Now, we know that Matthew doesn't care much for chronology. That's not the most important thing that he's trying to tell you, is the chronology of when things happen. As an example, we see Matthew's calling there in chapter 9, but it seems as though that actually happened much earlier than this, but it functions... Purposefully in the story that Matthew's telling. And so he puts it right there. Chronology doesn't seem to be his most important uh, uh, criteria as he's retelling this story. So we know that this happened as they were going away. That's what the, the passage leads off with. As they were going away. But we're unsure of the precise order of the miracles. When did this happen in relation to the other ones? The point is... Imagine if you're reading through chapters 8 and 9, just straight through. And We took a, a Sunday on each miracle, but imagine if you were just reading straight through chapter 8 and 9. These two statements by the crowds and by the Pharisees would come across to you as they, I think, were intended in this story as summary statements of the miracles that we've seen so far. This is Matthew's point, is it not? Is to prove to you and to me that Jesus has the authority over God's kingdom. So by the end of nine miracles, we're left saying, either, never has anything been like this in all of Israel. Or, He casts out demons by the Prince of Demons. The Prince of Demons, of course, being Satan, their assessment is that Jesus, Jesus is... Power comes from satanic authority. You notice that the Pharisees have to respond in some way. It's clear what they've seen. But they have to discredit its source. But see, their assessment of Jesus' nature is laughable at this point. It's laughable. It doesn't stand up to the evidence. The Pharisees haven't seen everything that Jesus has done in chapters 8 and 9. He ha- they haven't. They haven't been there for everything that Jesus has done. Remember when Jesus got out of the boat with his disciples? We see those, those, or he's in the boat with the disciples and the the sea is crazy and the wind is going around. They're they're in a panic and they're saying, Jesus, we're going to die. What are you going to do? You need to save us. And he stands up and rebukes the wind and the sea and it calms down. You remember when Jesus speaks to the demons? and they, they call him the Son of God, and they flee? Is that what Satan does? Does he calm seas? Does he keep people from panicking? Does he cast demons out? Remember when he heals the leper, and restores the leper to the community in Israel so that he can worship again at the temple? Is that something that Satan does? Remember when he raised the dead girl to life? Is that what Satan does? He brings life? Remember when he healed the centurion's servant from a distance? Is that the ministry of Satan? Remember when the demons just beg him? Is that the ministry of Satan? Don't torture us before the time has come. See, the Pharisees weren't there for that. Some of the crowds weren't either. But you were. The reader was. See, Matthew's point is not to prove to the crowds that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is King. It's not even to prove to the Pharisees Jesus' value and his worth, it's to prove it to you. You were there for all nine miracles. You tell me, is their assessment true? These two statements at the end of these nine miracles present to us our options for how we understand Jesus. Matthew is leaving it to the reader to decide. Which one do you think is more accurate? Both groups are giving their assessment of Jesus' personal value to them. Both groups are displaying their per- Jesus' personal value to them. See, both of them have to reckon with what they're seeing with their own eyes. The crowds believe that what they're seeing is, is of more value than anything that's ever been seen in Israel. And the Pharisees believe that what they're seeing is a product of a vicious enemy, the most vicious enemy the world has ever seen, Satan himself. Two options at the end of these miracles. He's either the best Or he's the worst. What does that mean to us? When it comes to belief in Christ, it's more than mere mental assent. It's a value assessment. It's more than mere mental assent. It is a question of personal value. Your belief in Jesus Christ, in other words, is not simply agreeing with the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection, even the ascension. Your assessment, your belief in Christ is a question of personal value. How much is He worth to you? You see, never in the world have we seen such things as we've seen in Christ. What we believe to be true is that Christ lived a perfect life, that He was truly God, truly man. That instead of taking all the rewards that would have come with a perfect life, He saw sinful humanity that could never make its way back to God. And instead of taking those rewards for Himself, He went to the cross, facing the wrath of God, so that you could have His rewards by faith. He went into a grave, and three days later, He rose from the dead. That's what we believe happened. That's the gospel that we preach. But see, we treat the word belief in Scripture as if it was just mere acknowledgement of the transcendent value of Christ. I believe He rose from the dead. I believe those facts that you're telling me. Yeah, sure, I believe. I believe. But you see, Scripture paints belief and faith as not only what Jesus is worth, but what he is worth to you. Listen to how Jesus first categorizes belief. What belief true belief actually looks like in the life of a believer. Matthew 13:44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, what does he do? He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search for fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The personal value of the kingdom, the personal value of Christ is more than merely seeing what he did and believing what he did, but it's actually doing something about it. It's actually understanding that all the things that I own in my life pale by comparison to what I could have in Christ. And if to gain him, it meant that I had to sell everything I own, then I'll do it. But it's not just Jesus and it's not just the gospels. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 1:21 20, to 24. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. Uh, just remember, he's hard pressed between the two, the two being death And persecution in ministry? Just throwing that out there. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul is in prison. Which is better? To be put to death? And to go be with Christ? Yeah, that's better. But... He leaves me here, I get to suffer in ministry for a lot longer. <laughs> does that sound like mere mental assent to you? Just believing the facts of the story? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Look at what James says in James 2 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? That's the question he's asking. Can that, that kind of mental assent, just saying that you have faith, just believing in Jesus, can, can that actually save you? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. James rules it out entirely. So the question is, how much is Christ worth to you? When we ask that question, so often we say, you know, I just don't know. Everybody talks about getting a deeper relationship with Jesus. and I I just really don't know how to do that. How do you grow in your relationship with Christ? And that's hogwash. You know it. How do you grow in your relationship with your spouse or with a friend? Guarantee you, it's always going to center around time spent in conversation in hearing from them in listening to them your relationship with them especially with something like someone like a spouse are going to occupy a lot of your thoughts so then when we come to the christian life you can tell a lot about the way someone values christ by the time they spend in his word by the time they spend in prayer by the amount of their thoughts that he occupies as they go about their daily life encountering people of all sorts see we pretend like there's 15 different ways to serve Christ well you got your radicals over here these are the people that sell everything they own and they go and serve on the mission field in Papua New Guinea and and they're just crazy sold out and they don't even have a TV and that's crazy right that's Ah, that's beyond what, what I could imagine. But then there's the less so. There's like the guys who, they're pretty crazy, you know, but they're not that crazy. They're, you know, they have a TV and they have a Netflix account, but they, there's a lot of things that they've done without. There's different choices that they've made in life. And then it just kind of gets, gets, you know, all the way back to where you get, you know, kind of a lukewarm guy. He just, just sort of shows up on Sunday, doesn't really give too much thought about it during the week. But that Sunday morning service for him is, you know, just kind of a, or her, is just sort of a, a battery charge. Man, I like to go there because it just makes my week better and it it, it gives me kind of the, the nice you know, kick in the pants that I need for Monday. Then you go back the other way varying levels of lukewarmness, all the way down to ice cold. You got people, well, he doesn't really come to church that much, doesn't really read his Bible a whole lot at all. All the way down to person, people that are just pagans, never set foot inside a church, man. They're atheists and. So we have these ranges of belief and categories that we give to people or maybe even to ourselves. But it's, it's funny that the Bible just never paints those categories. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. It's binary. One or two. A or B, black or white. See, there is a dividing line between heaven and hell. And it comes down to one question. How much is Jesus worth to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider what your word communicates to us in the Gospel of Matthew, as we think about as we think about how much Jesus is worth to us, I pray for a stirring in all of our hearts. That as we consider things like time spent in the Word, time spent in prayer, may it convict us. May we be moved to the point of change and action. As we encounter you through your word, I pray that it would shape us into the people you want us to be. So that we can't read your word and hear that you don't want division and then yet come and cause division. So that we can't read your word and see that you don't want apathy and yet go home and do nothing. I pray that would be anathema to us. That we would see what you say to us in, our, in your word. That would change our hearts for good. That it would be toward the building up of one another. Toward the salvation of people that are now lost. Pray that it would result in community around us growing and flourishing because we care. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.